Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Meni Evan Israel, who will be discussing the life and legacy of his father, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, of blessed memory. And we pray that in the merit of learning some of Rav Steinsaltz's Torah, uh, it will be a merit, a schut, for the safe and speedily return of the hostages who were brutally taken from their families and homes, and a merit, a schut, for the safety of our sons and daughters who are serving in the Israeli Defense Forces. May we have a complete victory, Nitzachon. By way of introduction, Rabbi Evan Israel was ordained by Israel's chief rabbi, Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, and he served as a campus rabbi for several years in the United States, including at the University of Maryland and SUNY Stony Brook. Rabbi Evan Israel currently serves as the executive director of the Steinzeld Center in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, overseeing Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinzeld's institution worldwide. And he is responsible for the completion of the English and French editions of the Steinzeld's Talmud and the publication of the Steinzeld's Tanakh among many other endeavors. Uh, Rabbi Adam Israel, thank you so much for uh, joining us today from Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure uh, with the circumstances and withholding, um, but it's, as it says, in the time, in this kind of time, the only thing we have left is... Um, the three things we can do, the three pillars of Judaism, is learn Torah, stand up prayers, which is usually to heal him in this time of day, and give tzedakah. So we're going to do some learning. We're going to at least talk about doing some learning, which is as important. Okay, thank you again. Um, just to start off, how would you describe um, your father, Rabbi Steinzel's childhood? When and how did he become a Baal Shuva? Sure. Um, again, the, the information I have is information I gathered through the years. He never talked about it. Never. I mean, in, in almost a religious way, he never talked about it. I don't think he was embarrassed in anything. There was not, this is not his type to be embarrassed about anything. But he never talked about it. Uh, he probably thought it's not necessary for us to know. He grew up in a, what we call the communist, communist uh, very pro-Zionistic house. My grandfather learned, as far as we know, learned in uh, Overloge in Ogrodna. I mean, he they were come from a Hasidic house, but they learned in the Goyeshivas. And he became a communist like many other of his friends. In 1926, I think, or 1932, he, he made Aliyah to Israel with my grandmother, who came, I think, a year before, a year after. And then... That was the house of the group. The house was uh, quite secular, but there were certain things that always were kept. I mean, the, the, my, my father celebrated bar mitzvah. I mean, it, it, it's a diff, it was a different world. I mean, the, the worlds were colliding, so to speak. There was a relationship, even if you didn't believe, they were not in a sense anti as, as one can imagine in a modern terms of it. Um, I think my father had a good experience and he had a great brain to ask the right questions. Um, the most famous stories about him that in the same point of his life, 
I heard different stories, maybe age 13, maybe 14, maybe 15. My grandfather told him that um, it's one thing to be an apicorus, an heretic, that we agreed with, no problem. But to be ignoramus, to be an amaretz, that is not acceptable. And therefore, here's your Talmud teacher. It seems to be that that's what happened one way or another, but I think my father already had his own interest from a much younger age to take a part with the Jewish world. So he grew up with it, and he grew up again. We're talking about he was born in 1937, so when the creation of the state, he's 11. I presume that had also a major impact on anybody who lived here in that, that uh, tremendous and tumultuous time. But mainly, I think that that religion, or in a sense, Judaism, gave him solace to his ever inquiring mind. The benefit of him of learning Talmud specifically was that there's never end. There's no end to learning Talmud. You can always add another layer, level, layer. You know, you can, you can read it, and then you can learn it one time with only Pshat, and one time only with Rashi, and one time only with Tosfot, and then one time to skip one page like this. I mean, there's endless information, endless amount of information. And as he had, uh, I'm not sure if it was photographic memory, but close enough to it, was very, very helpful. And he trained himself for at least what, again, what appeared to be from a very, very young age to concentrate, which is, which is an impressive fit. Most people, if you ask, ask individuals to sit down and think on a specific topic for 60 seconds, but not letting anything else come to your mind. I don't care if it's the last football game or it's the last or the last movie you saw, or the last page of Mark. I, I don't differentiate. I'm very, very polite here. Um, but try to concentrate for a minute. Most people cannot, just can't. And they have to, hardly to get to there, you have to work a lot to get the practice to do this. My father could have done this for hours. And that is a tremendous tool in understanding the way the system, system works. And I think that's where his childhood moves from just looking around, but really participating in in this inquiry and then his search for higher meaning. Okay. And, and education, as he moved on 14, 15, who did he study with? Um, what kind of an education did he receive, both religiously and secularly? So... Secularly or semi-secularly, he went at least partially to uh, to a high school that was very famous in Jerusalem called Male, who was the elite of the elite. Again, that's why I was told the, the elite uh, the elite students of Jerusalem used to learn there, both religious and non-religious. It was a religious school in, in again, it was the best school. That's the reason my my uh, my grandparents sent him there. And I don't think he finished actually all 12 grades. I think he had a year I took off, and, and then somebody had to beg for him to go back to school, the school to accept him. He, um, but he took it, I mean, he did a test, he passed the Barut on, on a decent level, not, people think, oh, your father's aced it. No, he didn't care, so I think he got like an average B plus. You know, it, it was not something that he interested in. He told us, one of the stories he told us is that he had his, uh, matriculation test, the Bagrut in, I think, literature. And he made a decision never to open the book. Father read thousand books. I'm never going to open the book. And he had to write the, the, you know, the essay, the final essay for the school. 
Got it. And you never open the book. You just use the title of the book to deduct what be the topic. When he got the result, which was again was passed or something like that, the teacher said, it seems that you vaguely had some context to what the book is about. That was the type of person. Um, he was what he, in that moment of time, he already had a private Talmud teacher. Um, as far as I know, it was connected to the Gur Hasidim. I'm not sure. Oh, this is again, I've never been told. Um, he had a connection to the local Chabad rabbi in Katamon, Rabbi Eli Ezrov, who was a scholar of magnitude. He was close to other rabbis throughout the, the Jerusalem corridor, and he, he never had an issue to speak to somebody. So he went to speak and talk and, and discover. But the challenge I think he found very, very early was that he, even from a very young age, didn't have any counterpart. His brain was yonder. You know, he was one level above most people. And, and you know, in our modern days, I mean, he had a very, I think he had a hard time relating to people. As, as a, you know, I, I don't think he understood stupidity. I don't feel, you know, I'm sure he didn't. It was very hard for him to relate to some people who are not as brilliant and smart as he is. Um, but he constantly learned, constantly opened whatever books he could get his hands on. Um, and this was really, really diverse. I'm talking about from math to physics to to Talmud, to Mishnah, to Gemara, to Kabbalah, anything you imagine, he read. Um, big advocate for reading constantly. Um, so, obviously, the translation of the Talmud was was a, a key achievement. Why why did um, your father, why did Rav Steinzeltz decide to author a translation of the Talmud? What did he see that was missing why the talmud as you said before it's it's there's so much there it's it's a it's a sea that's endless um why not something more i don't know basic simpler perhaps but we did that too in the end but um i I think that my father had a line which was I, i think really defined this kind of work his work and specifically why he chose talmud the line is like this. The Bible, which is the normal place, some place or, you know, a get-go book, at least we're supposed to at least know it, is God talking to men. That's the instruction. That's the manual. That's where God appeared to, to uh, appear. God is revealing himself with guidance and light and so on and so forth. And the Talmud is the book when men answer to God. And I think that is what that is what it is. I Means that to be a Jew is one thing. To understand who we are, to understand what we are, Talmud is a book. Talmud is the way we describe things, the way we create things, the way we think about things. I mean, the fact that the Talmud can argue about something that is completely insignificant, really insignificant to anything, on pages and long is about the mental exercise. The fact that they talk about stories from from you have stories about the sages, and you like you read them, like no, they didn't say that. That's make absolutely no sense. I mean, some of the description of the world around the, the Chachamim is scary. I mean, they look at the world in a very black and white. Maybe maybe they're not wrong, but you know, a lot of things that we do not even cannot even fathom saying today. They that was their life. Talk about sages that you have the names is is renowned, but they hardly had a minion for for Purim for Megillah. And 
it, the tremendous story, tremendous knowledge, tremendous information we have there is what kept the Jews Jews. He had another sentence, which I think was even more deeper, but that came later. And I, as you deal with history, maybe you maybe you can attest to that. He claimed that no Jewish community who did not learn Talmud survived. That Talmud was a key element of the survival of Jewish community. And, and in a sense, we know it. If the community did not have the koilam, one koilam, 10 guys, not more, 10 guys, that's it, um, they, they disappear. I mean, we see it in the Portuguese community in, in, in South America. In many places, there were Jewish communities that disappeared because of the lack of learning. At least they, that's the way he portrayed it. I think that was his main concern, that the Jews will stop being Jews. That we'll obey everything, we'll listen to everything, and we never don't ask questions. And the Talmud, and really it doesn't matter what page of Talmud you, you, you read, the first question is, why? Why did the scholars, the, the sages of 6th, of 7th, 8th, maybe ninth century, had to make a decision to put this text in? What bothered them? Why do we have to keep it? Why the story has to last the test of time? Before you even get to the content, just to understand where they were standing. You know, by, by definition, I learned more Talmud than anything else I learned. Um, I have to do with, you know, family thinking. And, and really, you read the stories, and that's every page of it. I ask the first question, why? Paper was expensive. Information was expensive. If there is a text, there must be a reason why it's there. And I think my father saw it as the opportunity to anybody, because really the Talmud, in a lot of ways, is not a religious book. I know it's almost sacrilegious to say it's not a religious book, but it's almost you can read Talmud and argue about the notions regardless of what you're feeling about it. And therefore, it's a major common dominator, in a sense, much more than the, the Bible. I mean, you teach the you teach the Chumash to somebody, okay, so you can pass Bereshit somehow without getting to two obligations. Once you get to Exodus, to Shemot, you're done. I mean, you all, obviously, you have to deal with commandments. Talmud, you can learn it as an intellectual conversation, which my father thought that as a premise as to what he did for the rest of his life, I bring you the spoon, I bring you the, the bowl of soup, well, in my case, I bring you the knife and the steak, and, but you have to cut it. You have to put it in your mouth. I'm not going to cut it for you. And that exercise was the thing that guided him the most, is that I'm not, I'm not planning to make it as simple as possible. I make it as accessible as possible. And from there you want to go, and he 100% believe without the notion of learning Talmud and comprehending the, the intrinsic value of it, there's no existence for the Jewish people. Who was the intended audience for, for that endeavor? And I'm kind of hesitant at this time to raise anything that smacks of machloket controversy, but but I agree. But I agree. but why did it face some opposition? And you know, without belaboring it. Okay, we we will make it politely. So first of all, the target audience, not till today, but definitely in the old, good old days when I was young and he before actually I was born was clearly the secular, non-affiliated Jews. is to give them a key for their own treasure throne. That was the, the point of it. 
For instance, this is not ours. People have this concept that because I have a long beard, it's getting wider by the day, that, that it's mine. No, it's ours. It's part of our, our treasure. And that was the guideline because my father felt that it's because the language is not Hebrew, will alienate more people even accessing it, which is true, and therefore they will never open it, will never expose to it. So they will get really stuck with the Tanakh, which was very popular in the beginning of the creation of the state. I mean, Ben-Gurion was well-versed, and many other members of the Knesset and the government were well-versed in the Bible. We come to the Talmud, not as much. So that, that, was a, that was a target audiences, and it really survived most of the time till the 80s, late 80s, 85, 86, 87, for 20-something years, that was a target audience. Um, I think the main reason people got upset with him, and again, I'll give this, I'll do it, as you said, we'll do it with the most polite, because this time we cannot find any bad about any Jew. It is repugnant. I think it's at the different mindset. And the difference was on that. Who is the target audience? My father's goal was to bring everybody in. And therefore, the language is more than Hebrew, and in English, it's more than English, and French is more than French. He will bring historical facts, and sometimes those historical facts will clash with the common understanding of the text, because, look, it doesn't happen like that. What can you do? Um, and some people like to keep things more traditional. My father didn't care about the shape of the page. That's already was a big no of a lot of people. Again, I understand the need. I understand the need of people. Some people have this tendency to close everything, to make sure that they are in their limitation to what they want and keep it only around their community. However, because of the community needs, that our ability to learn was diminished worldwide. We're not talking about Jews or, non, or, or religious or non-religious. Worldwide, we're learning less. The need of other organizations to come up with duplication, copies of the work is more, well, more than welcome. My father, my father, me and my father, a different view of it, but my father's view, we'll give him always the credit, was that they're all his stepsons, all his surrogate children. The fact that there's one audience, another, he never, he never cared. He said the goal is to extend learning Torah. And learning Torah is not about religious or not religious. It's not, it's not about it. That's from his perspective. Anybody can learn Torah. Anybody. Because the purpose that is the premises of the wisdom of God is the key to bring people together. I can have a conversation with everybody. I might disagree with him politically. I might disagree with him religiously. But I can have an intellectual conversation with him, which is one of the key elements, as I mentioned, for the Jewish people. Okay. Um, I, I know in, in our house we have a number of your father of Steinzel's books um, that are touch the subject of Kabbalah, um, which is so popular today in very, very wide circles. Um, where did um, Rav Steinzel learn Kabbalah and why was it important for him to, to write about Kabbalah for a general audience? It's really an excellent question. A, I don't know the answer. I have no idea where you land. I presume, the presumption is, Rabbi Eliezer was the key element there. But I presume that once you start learning, what you have really, as he, as he made very clear, you really have five, six books 
they all have multitude of volumes that you learn. You have Tanakh, you have Mishnah, you have you have Gemara, you have Shulchan Aruch Rambam, and then then what? You have Midrashim, and even in Midrashim, very quickly you realize there's a whole another realm that everybody talks about but nobody explains. And the more intellectual you are, the more you realize that the story, the, the depiction in both Ezekiel and Isaiah, Isaiah, are not human description. So a person of a magnitude is supposed to ask the question, what is this? What is the description? I think that's what moved him. He was well versed, well, well versed in the, the Kabbalistic text. I mean, I'm not talking about only the Zohar, but I'm talking about more more bizarre things. The books of Jactilia, the whole list of them, that he was expert on it. And I think that what, even from a very young age, I mean, when he started his unofficial movement called the uh, Flame of God, Shalhevet Yah, part of the notion was he knew that Hasidus is the key. Well, he called it a modern Hasidus is the key. And the basic concept of Hasidic learning is taking the world around us and not instead of ignoring it, making it part of what we do. It's to find the holiness in the mundane and find the mundane in the holiness and, the brand, and bring them together to one thing to utilize for God. And, and I think that, look, we all know one of our expertise, again, I'm sorry, be very moving a little bit uh, anecdotal here. Father, one of my father's best attributes or best talents was ability to pray. He used to come to the synagogue in the old city, which he was the he was the rabbi of the Chabad shul in the old city. Apropos wars, it's the only shul, at least according to the legend, that was not destroyed in the '67 war. Father was the rabbi there for almost 50 years. And my father used to spend, what happened is, my father used to sit there and try to pray, but anybody who cannot get appointment with him in the office knew there's no secretary. And so they automatically came to bother him in the synagogue. But in the synagogue, one thing he did, so he spoke in the Kriyasa Torah came, he of course was in the Torah, and he participated, whatever participated. But then he started davening. Really pray. And that could take three to four hours. That ability of, besides the ability to meditate for a long time, that ability come from understanding there are, if there's hundreds of levels of the Talmud, there's as many levels in prayer. And when once you start applying uh, Kabbalah, Hasidus, to your text, to your learning, to your prayer, it's a whole different, amazing experience. I mean, we, we learn, I think, I think every kid in Israel who's going to religious school learn the basic kavana of the names of God, right? There's, there's God who is the part of, uh, you know, the nature, part of God that is above nature, you know, this part of the master of the universe. It's all clear. When, once you start implementing Kabbalah and mysticism, it's a whole different layer. It's a difference between the first bracha of Shemunah Yisrael you do in Shacharit and the same bracha what you do in Mincha. And it's a whole different world when you come to Mari. So I think he, my father wanted to share this with people, that they have the ability to reach. However, his original book on Kabbalah, The Third Imperial Rose, 
is exactly 180 degrees, complete opposite than the Talmud. There's nothing easy in the book. It's not meant to be easy. It's meant to engage people, meant to access it, but it's a book that it's, you have to spend time learning it. It's just not, it's not as easy. And because the purpose was a whole different thing. The purpose was to open another layer of Torah learning, of Jewish, Jewish knowledge, to a whole different audience that can, they can and they have the capabilities to read this like that. And I think that's what he looked for. He was, in a lot of ways, it was Kabbalistic nature. I mean, I, I can't tell you anymore why Talis, he didn't. But he, you know, the way he did Kiddush, the way he cut his bread, the way he said verses that he told me to say before Tkiyat Shofar, all kind of things that had a list of, the only way to describe them are Kabbalistic meaning. Now, can I find other meaning in them? Absolutely. But I think he, he got there, he got to those ideas from mysticism. I remember when I got married, you know, and, and we had this uh, conversation, you know, of course, being my father, my father had a medical treatment that day. Why can you do it the next day? I don't know, but the medical treatment, we're sitting in Sharet Tzedek, and we're talking, and he's like, okay, so this is what you have to think under the chuppah. And he had the whole list, which, you know, what you have to do in this, what you have to do in that, what is the this meaning, what is that meaning? And I talk, but I asked him, you know, it's all mean hugging. Right, none of this thing we do on the chuppah that became sanctum, became holy, you know, running around the challah, all this stuff is customs. So yeah, but now after being established as custom, we pour into them whole different meaning. We we you know we elevate those customs to a whole different level of grandeur. And and he, you know, it, it was tremendously important for me, and, and I think that's the main reason why he did it. Okay. What was um your father, Rav Steinsaltz's approach to Jewish education, and how did that apply, and how did he get involved in Russian Jewry and the education of Russian Jewry? So, as I said, my father' main main goal in life, as you see here in the wall, is let my people know he believe that his Judaism, the way he perceived Judaism, is knowledge. And without knowledge, there's nothing. Jews that only obey will get absolutely nowhere. That even though that he had a great, really, great respect to customs and behavior and, and, and mitzvah, practical mitzvahs, he really believed that the really key is understanding the word of God and understanding knowledge. And understanding with our knowledge, we can't do anything. And, and by the way, we see it today. We see it everywhere you go. People sometimes follow customs and you argue with them about the custom because it's just beyond, it's just not logical. And, the, and, and there's no conversation because they never learned. The, the rabbi did this and the, grandfather, the, the rabbi rabbis did it. And nobody asked you a question. It, and it's becoming, becoming very, very um, remote in, in that understanding, he believed that maybe maybe it's another way to look at it is the, the mitzvah, you should put and take heed, put it in your heart, have the knowledge of what is God. You have to know God. You have to 
to the human knowledge, human ability, you have to go and, and, and spend the time. And I think when he came to, when he had this amazing story of going into Russia and getting the permit, which is again, it's miracle after miracle. Um, we still today don't understand what happened there. My father went to Russia in around 87, maybe 86, with a passport with no visa to go into Russia. Literally, it, nothing on his passport was empty. It was a new passport. It was not even one, nothing. He went in, they let him in Russia, which is crazy as they come. And then from there, after many hours of investigation, interrogation, whatever it is, nobody threatened him, by the way. The Russians didn't know what to do with him. So they sent him to the Italians. And the Italian had the ambassador there, or attaché, who happened, later on became the, the president of Italy, Andreotti, who took likeness to my father. And he said, you know, I'm going to help you. And he created a big meeting with him and um, I forgot the name of the minister, not Horachov, maybe Horachov. And, and they talk about creating, recreating the first academy, Jewish academy in Moscow. Basically, they build a yeshiva and call it academy and let the Russian pay for it under the Academia of Russian Science, which is just a, just a sentence makes no sense. I mean, again, let's repeat it. This is a really, it's a yeshiva in parentheses. We're going to call it Academy for Jewish Studies under the Academy of Sciences, not even philosophy, which is mind-blowing. Um, and, you know, when he did that, I think he, he created a lot, of, uh, a lot of Russian intellects, which is, this is the Russian, my father... I think aimed for those who read, they can read the, you know, they have a continuation of, of um, you well, know, can read Google, they can read Dostoevsky and then understand it is too short, and maybe they have another five, six hundred thousand pages. You know, this, this is the intellectual thing. And my father thought that if he will approach them and, and bring uh, knowledge and information to them, create the system there, um, it will be a tremendous help for them to, A, relearn who they are. She was, you know, the Russian Communist Party actually was very efficient of destroying memories. And he thought that will be very, very helpful. And it was. And it was for a while till, uh, till I think he realized that right now there's a power on the ground. Chabad came in and Chabad took over and they, they're doing tremendous work there. And therefore, then he left. But before that, yeah, we, he was very involved in Russian jewelry and he liked them. She was unique for him to like anything. Okay. Um, what do you think um, is the your father's Rostainzolt's most important book, and why? Um, not your fa- not your favorite. We'll get to your favorite, but okay. what, what is the most important? I think the most important book of my father is The Thirty Pale Rose. What he did there to Kabbalah is, is really second to none. The ability to basically compile, I don't know, thousands of books into a very small book and really give access to people to understand what it's all about is, I think, my father tremendous, tremendous success. And it's on, and the twin brother of that book, which is um, the essential Talmud. The father descended into the Talmud. Again, there's always 
as generation goes by, you can always think about upgrades and um, and what what could I've done better? Maybe pictures there too. Um, but I think these two books, what I call them, the Twin Brothers, uh, are tremendous. They they his ability to write so clear, and and the, the, the ability of the editor, Yuda Negbi, may rest in peace, to to bring my father's words so clearly. That that is, it's it's for me. It's very clear that is our. That is a business card. That's what I, I usually buy, because you know we we're not the publisher anymore. Koren is the publisher, so we we I buy from Koren 30, 40 copies of each every year and give them away because that is the key for what we do. Again, I think upgrade can always be done, but uh, I think there are. This is the two books. And your favorite one? Is that different from the most important sure. ones? My favorite one is Tractate of Odazara. In the Talmud, Tractate of Odazara is, is just a tremendous book. What they did there, bringing back uh, the censorship, bringing back the stories, not being afraid to uh, add the picture of some idols here and there. Um, my favorite book, Tractate of Odazara in the Talmud, it just it's a, it's a comfortable read. I mean, some of the stuff obviously is hard, but it's a very interesting, especially in our modern world, the view of the, the Jewish community versus the world around them and what you do when the culture around you changes and your premises of idol worship move from, oh, they no longer worship idols. What am I going to do with this? Um, what do I do with the fact that no longer the local non-Jew wants to kill me? Or most of the time he doesn't want to kill me. Um, what do I do with it? The Talmud of Sabadazar deal with it. And they, they, they've, again, they, I think they have hilarious stories there. I mean, some of them are just unspeakable. But uh, some of them are just, you know, the, the way they look at themselves with the, with the non-Jewish world, it, it's different. And I think that part of what my father did there was also understand that we are not separate from the world. Judaism and our faith and our existence is part of the world around. The world is part of the divinity, the part of the, the spirituality around us. This is what we have to look in best of, or best of ways to do so. I mean, I think if it's paraphrasing what Lubavitch Rebbe did, right? what we do now, we do a Zoom in an internet, God forbid, which is oy, what you can see there, but you, it's really, you can see all evil and you can do good. And I think that is the, I think the message for me for Tractate of the Voda Zara, which is my favorite book, so to speak. Did, did your father engage with non-Jewish personalities, intellectuals? Um, was that, a, was there, were there dialogues and what kind of dialogues were there or was it, you know, that, that wasn't part I mean, of, of what he did? It was definitely part of what he did. He was never engaging it in an active way, but he, when he was asked, he was asked, he's a very famous, uh, in the year 2001, when they did the 2000 year millennium summit in the UN, which my father gave a speech there, he, there was a meeting between the Jews and the cardinals. And uh, my father, so my father was a senior rabbi, even though the chief rabbi of Israel were there. My father was, at least the way I read the text, Again, I was not there. My father was regarded as the top top rabbi. And my father was set, they set my father near Lustiger, which was the Jewish uh, cardinal of France. And uh, 
My father turned around to him and said, can you tell me where does it say in the New Testament that a Jew converted to Christianity doesn't have to put fill in every day? I mean, he had a conversation with them and he believed that the relationship needed to be strong and powerful. And he understood that our allies in our these generations are the church and not the Muslims. Uh, present uh, time will prove this again. And he, but he did not push it in the sense of he, it was not part of his agenda. He sent me when I was very, very young to have a conversation with the one the local archbishops here in Jerusalem. I was involved with him, but again, it was not part of the tremendous agenda of his. It happened to be. He had meeting with, I think, most religious, major religious leaders, including his last meeting with all before his stroke was with the Pope. What is um, your favorite story um, about your father? Whether it's you know from childhood or after childhood, what what what's the, what's a what's the memory um, of that? Um, so I have plenty of them because I, I also managed. I, I worked with him since uh, two thousand five. Stroke was two thousand sixteen. So I, I tell you two stories. One is is my story is so we're going back. This is literally seven hours before he's getting the stroke, and we end up playing back from Italy immediately after meeting with the Pope. And um, you know, and we, we we sit together and we fly and it's all nice. And all of a sudden, I realize I didn't ask him what did you speak the Pope of the Pope about. You know, and I turn around and said, uh, Father, I said yes. Um, so what did you speak to? What did you speak the Pope about? He said, we spoke what two old men talk about all the time, women and food. So, again, it, it was a joke, clearly. Um, and then he went and elaborated what he wanted to talk about. But he definitely had a sense of humor about it. You know, the man just met a major world leader. And that the sense of humor of it, nothing he did seriously, was very, was very important. That he took this idea of tremendous ability to be sarcastic and to be, to be in a sense, to, be, to laugh at things. It was very important. Um, but my other childhood memory, which I hold very dear, and I, I keep saying it, so it's not that unique. It won't be the first time I'm saying it. So uh, as a young man, as a child, and even today, I, I, I don't sleep well. I'm sure some doctors can help me. I'm sure. I'm just, it's okay. So I, my fa- I used to wake up around, let's say, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, and my father was just coming back from work. And in the living room, I live in, our house is very much like a, my parents' house. It's much more like a hobbit tunnel. It's very, very, it's relatively very, very narrow and very long. In the middle is the living room, and they have uh, this round, old round IKEA table from I think from the fifties. And uh, my father's sitting there, and he has his historical pipe, which was everywhere. It's a Talmud open and a science fiction book attached to it. I think that is my father. That that was it. I mean, it's the ability also to say to people in, in, in something that I try to teach everybody. Anybody who tells you he doesn't have time, it's clear to me he's lying to you. Everybody has time. There's no such thing as somebody's too busy. He might doesn't want to give you the time, but he has time. The father was a tremendously busy human being. He had meetings 
most most likely all day long. More, you know, most of the time that was the schedule. Starting early, finishing late, working on his own materials. But he always, if he wanted to meet you, he had time. There was no issue. And I think part of it that he was not arrogant enough. Now, the funniest thing is that his favorite excuse was, and somebody who didn't want to meet, was I don't have time. So after one of those meetings, I came to him and said, Father, I don't understand. I know you have time. I know the schedule of this week. And you know you have time because clearly it's your schedule. Why do you tell this individual you don't have time? He said, because they don't know. And I think that is the the key part of it. Tell us a little bit about the Steinzold Center, um, what you're doing, what the future plans are. Sure. So the Steinzold uh, Center right now is located in Jerusalem, in the center of the city in Kernai South Street. Our main emphasis is to bring my father works that we did not publish yet or we did publish in one language, translate into many other languages and make them available and accessible to everybody constantly. So the first thing we did, which we did this year, was to launch our app and a web portal that have, again, tremendous amount of information in it, but it will have everything. My father left, according to estimate, uh, we don't have the final number, something close to 15,000 pages of materials was not published yet. And then more or less between eight to 9,000 hours of audio and three to 4,000 hours of video, that all of them can be edited, translated, work, create materials with it. I think we have enough books to publish, let's say for the next 100 years, more or less. Um, so that'll be a tremendous work we're we'll doing the next 10 years. We'll be, a lot of it will be categorizing it, um, analyzing the text, and uploading it online because a lot of the stuff is it's nice but it's not book worthy. Me personally, I have promised my father that I will finish his desire to uh, to finish the Jewish canon in both English and Hebrew. From our perspective, the Jewish canon is very clear. There's uh, Tanakh, there's Mishnah, there's Talmud, there's Rambam. And there's uh, Tanya, just to make sure the Lubavitchers are into. And uh, so we finished this in Hebrew. And the English, we finished the Tanakh. We finished the, the Talmud. The Tanya is about to finish in literally less than six weeks. And now we start working on two major projects of doing the, both the Mishnah and Rambam in English which I estimate they'll be ready to for the public as a complete set. And we won't have part of them before in the next uh, four and a half years. Okay. Um, this, this week, actually yesterday, I was um, at a class, a shuar given by a, um, a local Rav. And he told the following story. He said that in 2014, um, when the IDF was involved in Lebanon, um, he attended a wedding, and they asked him to speak uh, under the chuppah. And next to him was your father, Rav Steinzeltz. So he turned to your father and he said, "Father Rav, you, you you should be speaking, uh, you know." And, and your father said, "No, no, you 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 say whatever needs to be said under 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 the chuppah." And the Rav said that um, 
as he started to speak, your father actually started to correct him on a few things, but okay. But but he said one of the things that he spoke about, you know, as he was talking about the army and the soldiers, he was talking about, uh, you know, that there should be an Hatzlacha. And your father interrupted him and said, no, 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 it, it, not Hatzlacha. It has to be a Nitzachon. And he said it in English. There has to be a victory, not a Hatzlacha. So I guess the question is, and I know this is a hard question, how how would your, your father, how would Rav Steinzoltz view the events of today? From what perspective, from what lens do you think he would view what we're going through today here in, in Israel? So it's, it's clearly a very heavy question. Um, yeah. And I'm not my father, so I can only uh, imagine. So my father would look at the thing in three different ways. First way is he'll be concerned about his own grandkids. My father has now six grandkids who are serving in the army um, in a variety of locations. I mean, well, we, as you said, you wish him victory as much as we can. And then that would be one perspective. It's a personal perspective, personal revelation, revering. And the second one will be concerned about his students. We, uh, as we speak, Momentarily, we have we have 130-something students, a variety of ages, from Maheste Yeshiva, which was called in completely to people who are teachers already or staff at the center itself, who are there. But then, but that's all, that's still on a personal level. I think my father will have two parts to his view. One, he will be in a tremendous pain. The father was maybe he is a lover of the Jewish people. He cared about it. He cared about people. And, and the tremendous evilness that we, we saw, the pain, the suffering, the, the, the sorrows that we were witnessing, that will be something that will be on, on, on his heart and soul. Two, as much as my father loved people, also he loved humanity. But he cared more about our humanity, cared more about our people. And he would be, as he told this rabbi, which I don't know his name, some small victory we had in Lebanon, or we want to have in Lebanon in 2014. The tremendous victory that we need to have now should be a victory that, not just to be a victory that we can say, ah, we showed them. No, it would be a victory in such level that the ancient prophecy of Azinu, Aninu Goim Amo, Hidam Adavo, Dam Avad Avyiko, Nakam Yoshev Etzorov, Achiper Admos Amoy. The word, the key word of that verse in, in Azinu, I think it's verse 43, is Arninu, where the nations of the world will realize that our victory is not for us only. It's for purifying and clearing the world. That we know we want. That is when you know also that God is with us, and that's when you know where we actually had we are victorious. I think that's what he will say. Of course, he will do it in a much more elegant and elaborate way than me, but um, I think that's what he will say. He cared, but he also wants people not to be to be um, be afraid want people to know that victory is needed. We are allowed to say these words. We need a clear 
and decisive victory. Well, well, I guess we'll leave on that note and that that fila and the, the schut of uh, your father and the, the learning and the Torah and as you mentioned, um, learning and fila and tzedakah and chesed um, should um, should hopefully protect everybody and bring that victory and um, of uh, Evan Israel. Thank you so much for sharing sure. um, your thoughts, the Torah, and of course the personal memories. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure.